Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage One, online accounting software designed to create freedom for small businesses to succeed. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, we will take on declaring independence from the tyranny of Taylorism. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all value is subjective, that the customer is the sole arbiter of value which we in enterprise create, and it is price that determines costs, not the opposite, that to secure these truths, policies and procedures are instituted among knowledge workers, and that whatever any policy becomes destructive of these principles, it is the right of the knowledge worker to alter and abolish it. And to institute new policies, laying its foundation on such principles as shall seem most likely to affect their creativity, dignity, self-respect, and happiness. Happy Independence Day, Ron. Yeah, you too, Ed. So we're declaring our independence from the tyranny of Taylorism. Who, who is this guy, Frederick Winslow Taylor, and why are we declaring our independence from this dude? This is an amazing story. I mean, one man, uh, the ghost of Taylorism, still casts a very long shadow. This guy was born in uh, 1856, and he basically was the guy who ran around and did the time and motion studies uh, in steel mills and factories, and he's credited with increasing the efficiency of the industrial era. I mean, he's credited with a lot of things, but he was uh, kind of the world's first business consultant. He charged $35 a day. And, and he's a classic example of the type of thinker that Justice, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote 100 years after he is dead and forgotten. Men who never heard of him will be moving to the measure of his thought. And that is certainly true to this day. To this day in business enterprises around the world, we pay tribute to the ghost of Taylorism, or what I call the gospel of efficiency, because everybody declares that we need to be more efficient. It's really a cult of efficiency, Ron. That's, that's my observation. And, and wasn't it Holmes that actually coined the term scientific management on which Winslow Taylor's book was, he, was written, right? Yes, he did. Uh, in fact, he, he, uh, he was a big promoter of Taylorism and thought it would you know, do, uh, make government more efficient, make business more efficient, save all this money. And, and you know, Taylor set out to prove that management is a true science with laws as exact and as clearly defined as the fundamental principles of engineering. He kind of had an engineering background and even a cost accounting background. And if you think about it, Ed, this, this idea that management is a true science is kind of the antithesis of this very show. I mean, we, this show is the soul of enterprise, so we're not just talking about the materialist side of business. We're also talking about business enterprise has a soul. There's a spirit here, and those things can't be measured. So I, I believe what we're talking about is the antithesis of Taylorism. 
Yeah, I mean, and he was also a bit nuts too. I mean, as as, as I, I read up on him and had, had read over the past, I mean, I, th- I think when he was twelve years old, didn't he in, invent something to prick him awake when he would roll over onto his stomach or something to to prevent him from having <laughs> nightmares? I mean, it's, it was a little <laughs> little crazy from the yeah, end. That, like you know, junior high school dances, he would draft charts of the, of the of girls according to their beauty, and then he would try and uh, divide his time between you know the the pretty ones and the not so pretty ones and he collected vast amounts of cricket scores and you know that's probably more exciting than watching cricket himself the cricket itself so i can't blame him for that but yeah he was kind of a strange duck but uh, let me just define taylorism so people know what we're talking about it's the application of scientific methods to the problem of obtaining maximum efficiency in industrial work or the like. I mean, they actually applied this to the homemaker as well, how to be more efficient in the home. And there were all sorts of articles in in ladies' magazines and all that type of thing. So this guy had a massive impact on the culture uh, during the progressive era, you know, that the early 1900s. And he had a, he actually had a disciple. You want to talk about a strange duck, uh, a bigger duck, a stranger duck was his disciple, Frank Gilbreth, who, as you know, Ed, we talk about this all the time. He did the movie. Uh, they did a movie uh, on him called Cheaper by the Dozen and not the Steve Martin recent one, but uh, the one that was starring Clifton Webb, I think made back in the late 40s or 50s. But that was actually based on a book that two of Frank Gilbreth's kids wrote and that this guy was a real strange duck. For instance, he was an efficiency expert, and he used to shave with two razors because he th- he said, "Well, this shaves minutes, you know, saves minutes off off the time of shaving." And of course, one day he cut himself, and it actually cost him more time. So, uh, the, but this whole cult of efficiency, uh, we're still dealing with the ramifications of it to this day. Right, and and Taylor was the guy who really started all of this stuff. It was his his thinking that that brought this on. And as you said, it was it was applied in a lot of different places in the progressive era. I mean, I, I think another one of of Taylor's disciples was the guy who invented the Gantt chart. This guy Gantt, right? Who was right. huge, huge in the Soviet Union. I mean, <laughs> you know, the five year plans really worked out well, but. But, and, and Lenin was a, a kind of a disciple of Taylorism. He, he thought that the, 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 the new Soviet Union had to really embrace Taylorism to make itself scientific and you know put it on the map. And also Mussolini uh, was a big fan. In fact, after Taylor died, Mussolini had an audience with Taylor's widow. Uh, so he's credited with all sorts of things that he didn't really do. I mean, some people say you know he had something to do with the Holocaust, and this is taking it too far. But there, but there's no doubt. That Taylor's ghost still still haunts the halls of businesses to this day. Oh, absolutely! I, I was I was in in conversation today with some coworkers on on some of these matters, and and the the the, the where it manifests itself today is in terms like scalability. Right. Yes. Um, it, it, uh, certainly efficiency inside an organization, and le- and let's let us set the record straight here. We are not anti-efficiency, are we? No, nobody can be anti-efficiency. However, the problem with this word efficiency is it's, if you attack it, it's like attacking motherhood and apple pie. I mean everybody says, you got any conference, listen to pick up any business book. We need to be more efficient. We need to be more efficient. And Ed, I think we should spend some time explaining this or at least talking about it because you know, you've affectionately labeled this debate that we have at Verisage. Uh, efficiency versus effectiveness, you've labeled this the effing debate. 
EFF. EFF. Yeah, EFF. Uh, the effing debate. And, and, and let's, let's define this. Um, classically, you hear it put this way. And, I, and I've just read this definition the other day. Efficiency is about doing things right, whereas effectiveness is doing the right thing. But that's not true. Efficiency is not doing things right. Efficiency makes no judgment about doing things right. Efficiency is a blind, stupid ratio. It's always a ratio. Uh, it's, it's outputs divided by inputs or some such thing. It doesn't say anything about doing things right. It's just a measurement. And as you know, measurements can obscure reality. They can actually uh, blind us to, to the truth, and they can actually crowd out judgment. For, for instance, I can prove on average that everybody in the world has on average one testicle. Well, mathematically, I, I'm right on saying that. But if I believe that as a human being, I'm an idiot. Right. And, and I think this goes to something that, that is a, a, one of the deeper elements that perhaps we'll address in, in a future show is this, this idea of obsession with, with me- measurement of things. And uh, I've, I've really come to the conclusion that every, every measurement is really first a judgment in disguise, right? One, one of the ways that I will demonstrate this is I'll, I'll be up in front of an audience and I'll say, well, how, how fast am I moving? Well, not, not fast at all because I'm just standing there at all. And I say, well, but what if you took it from the perspective of above the earth? You would see that the earth is rotating and I'm moving at a thousand miles an hour. And then as you, you know, get further and further away, you know, the, the top of the solar system, the whole, the earth is going around the sun. And of course, our solar system is going around the Milky Way. So it turns out, you know, that this is Einstein's theory of relativity applied to b- business. The measurement is based on the perceiver of where you are. And I think that that's part of the problem is that all too often, we just measure stuff because we think we should measure stuff. And no right. thought is given is, and no judgment is put into, is this the right measurement in the first place? Right. I, I, that's such a great example. And I think, isn't that a class law that all measurements are, in fact, judgments? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so one, one of the laws that I've coined, yes. All, <laughs> all measurements are really judgments in disguise. You have to then take a step back and ask some questions about that. It's like, okay, what, what am I judging with this measurement. Right. Well, you know, I'm here in wine country in, uh, in, in Northern California, and there's a great saying that the winemakers have around here, which is you, you can count, it's easier to count the bottles than to describe the wine. Uh, you know, we can count the cost of the grapes and the vines and all of that, the, all the inputs, the bottles, the corks, but, but it says nothing as to the value of the wine. Uh, that takes description, that takes judgment, that takes a refined palate, all of those things. And, and I think that's what's really important to understand is that a measurement is not a judgment. And in a knowledge economy, a judgment is superior to a measurement. In, in all cases, yeah. Well, and I would say it's in a knowledge economy, true. Hey, quickly, Ron, there's, there's a lot of things that we are, are talking about here that maybe we should fill some folks in on bef- before we undertake things. One, you mentioned earlier the Verisage Institute. So let's just quickly talk about that. Why don't you just give us a brief description of that? Yeah, the Verisage Institute is a think tank I founded with my uh, two co-founders, Justin Barnett and Dan Morris. And we kind of, uh, you know, our goal is to teach uh, professionals basically about the knowledge economy or just teach business people in general about the knowledge economy and how we're knowledge workers and how knowledge workers are the opposite of what Taylor uh, studied, which was industrial workers, you know, who worked in steel factories and whatnot. 
And and so Verisage is out there trying to help businesses understand that we live in the knowledge economy and, and all of the implications of that. Right. And for, for the record, I work for a company called Sage, and we, we make and manufacture software. But for the longest time, my job has really not been about technology at all. It's really been a a business consultant to the folks that implement our software. And over the course of the last two years, I've gotten a chance to get a lot closer to our customers as well and then also work with the Sage Accountants Network. But Ron and I, you, you, we, we came into contact with each other, what, 10 years ago at this point? Yes, I believe it was 2003 or 2004, yes. Yep, yep. And, and Verisage has nothing to do with Sage except the last four letters are the same, and I like to say, and, and, and I'm involved with both. That, that's, those are the only commonalities there. Right, but, right. But, but Verisage, tell, t- tell everyone the, 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 the origin of Verisage and why it's called Verisage. It's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, the name, uh, we had a name consultant come in and, and she basically took Vera, which is veracity, and uh, combined it with sagacity, so true wisdom. So that's how we got Vera Sage. So it doesn't have anything to do with Sage, uh, but that, that's how we came up with the name. And we, we should talk about the, that a lot of the material that we'll be talking about uh, over the course of our show is really based on, on the thoughts and reflections that, that you and I have, have had over the years and really the help of, of the, the folks who are fellows at the Verisates Institute who constantly challenge our thinking. And, and that's one of the things that you and I loved is, is to be challenged in, in, in our thinking. Right, because I mean, I, I believe ideas have consequences, and ideas rule the world. And it's really important to to study an idea and know its antecedents, but also know its consequences. And so, I think think tanks are a, a great model because they operate in the arena of ideas, no matter where those ideas come from. So we're always willing to take an idea and turn it around, and subject to it to our own you know processes, and and see how it comes out. That's what excites me. Ideas excite me. Yeah, and 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 thinking about this stuff is clearly very inefficient. So, yes, <laughs> not a, hopefully though quite effective. Right, and that, and that's what we're going to get into in late, later portions of the, this program today. Is that we're going to contrast the idea of effectiveness and efficiency, and even maybe talk about I think something that's really cool a better word. That, that you and I have thrown around called efficaciousness, efficaciousness. I just love saying it. It's a good word. I do too. And, and uh, yes, I, I, there are many more things to say about effectiveness versus efficiency. For example, what if Walt Disney had listened to efficiency experts? And if he did do that, uh, what would have been the consequences? And, and we'll talk about that maybe when we return, Ed. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network are you interested in the topics discussed on the soul of enterprise would you like to explore them in more detail visit verisage.com forward slash books for links to ron baker's books titles such as pricing on purpose Measure what matters to customers and his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E and follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you work in, lead, or own a professional firm? Do you like what you hear from Ron and Ed on the soul of enterprise? Come see them live at the Affinia Manhattan Hotel in New York City on August 14th and 15th at the Sage Firm of the Future Symposium. Ron and Ed will help you and your organization make the transformation to a modern professional knowledge firm, one that is paid for value, not time. Visit Verisage.com forward slash firm for more details. That's Verisage.com forward slash firm. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. The cult of efficiency is a descendant of the thoroughly discredited Marxian labor theory of value, which has never adequately explained value in a free market and has no jurisdiction to control the intellectual capital of which the knowledge workers are engaged in creating. Happy Independence Day again, Ron. Yeah, you too, Ed. I'm loving these quotes that you're uh – that you're springing on everybody. Where where are you getting these, by the way? Well, this is you know our sort of a little inside joke that that we have at the Verisage Institute. One one thing that we we've done a long time ago is to declare independence from the timesheet, and uh, I've 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 made little changes to these in that we're declaring our independence from the tyranny of Taylorism. And this cult of efficiency—that's the subject of our show today. So let's 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 jump back into it. I, we, we talked about the difference, possibly, between effectiveness, efficiency, and efficaciousness. And right. you were going to tell us a steer, tell us a story about Walt Disney and Snow White. So go on, why don't you go on and talk about that? Right. And here's a great example of why efficiency is not just necessarily doing things right, whereas effectiveness is defined as doing the right thing. If, Snow, if Walt Disney had listened to efficiency experts, you know, when he was making Snow White, it was known as, the, uh, as Disney's uh, folly. Everybody thought he'd go broke. Oh, nobody wants to sit through a full animated feature. He had the studio leveraged to the hilt. He even cashed in his life insurance policies. I mean, everything was riding on this movie. And this was, of course, in the 30s during the Depression. And if he had listened to efficiency experts, they would have came in and they would have seen these animators uh, drawing, you know, there was something like two million or over a million hand-drawn animated cells. And they would have said, Walt, you need to finish this movie, get it in the can, get it in theaters, start earning back some of the money so you can pay off the debts and all of that. And, Ed, we would be home or your kids would be home now watching Snow White and the Four Dwarfs. Now, certainly from an output-input ratio, that would have been, quote-unquote, more efficient. However, it wouldn't have been nearly as effective. Disney wasn't after efficiency. He was after effectiveness because, you know, the, the, the two little pigs just doesn't have the same ring to it. So it's not about efficiency. It's all about effectiveness at the end of the day. Well, and let's tie this together. So the, the idea is here that knowledge workers are more like artists, right? And that, in, in a sense, and I, I have believed this for years, business is not a science, right? B- biz- business is is an art. Absolutely. And, and, and that's why we, it was so easy for us to come up with the title of our show, The Soul of Enterprise, because we wanted to talk about that artistic nature of business. It's not just you know something that can be reduced to numbers. 
and th- and there's really no such thing as this like generic efficiency either. That's a Thomas Sowell quote, isn't it, Ron? Y- yes. Uh, I mean, first off, you know, was Einstein efficient? How would you, how would you even know? And and by the way, would you even care? Uh, from what I understand, when Einstein was stuck, he'd sit in a room, play a violin for hours at a time. Now, this isn't very efficient. He he was, however, quite effective. Uh, and and I think the other point that needs to be made, Ed, is we can obviously be efficient at doing the wrong things, right? And there's nothing more useful or useless or or more wasteful than being efficient at the wrong thing. So uh, I, I think that's a very important distinction between these two. But yes, there's no such thing as generic efficiency. Yeah. You, I- you, you can't meaningly, meaningfully define it without regards to purpose, desires, and preferences and, and how much we're willing to pay for something. I mean, our cars are, for the most part, very inefficient. They're idle 90% of the time, but they're very effective because when you want to go somewhere, you get in them and you just go. So we, we make these trade-offs all the time between these two concepts. Right. Well, that's changing because there'll be driverless cars, and then we won't have to own a second car. But that's a, that's a whole that'd be a whole other show. A- absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And 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 in the business context, I mean, you say there's no such thing as generic efficiency, but this applies even to more than business. I mean, if you look around the world, you ask yourself why do these cities build these incredible bridges like the Golden Gate or the Sydney Harbor Bridge? Uh, these aren't very efficient. You could put a military bridge up much quicker much cheaper cost. It would carry just as much weight uh, because a military bridge doesn't appeal to our souls. You know, it, 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 it doesn't have the same impact. And, and I think that's another really good way to highlight this difference between effectiveness and efficiency. And, and the other thing that you and I always talk about and, and provide many examples of is uh, competitive advantage lies with effectiveness, you know, businesses aren't paid to be efficient. I, I think the buggy whip manufacturers were at the apogee of their efficiency, but they were doing the wrong thing by the time the combustion engine came out. So the comp- competitive advantages of businesses lie in effectiveness because efficiency can be replicated quite easily by your competition. Right. And it's about really out-innovating your competition in, in a lot of cases. I, I've got a great story, though, about the uh, efficiency effectiveness and it not meaning anything from a customer perspective. And this this goes back, I think, 10 years. And uh, it's an insurance company, which shall remain nameless for the purposes of this show, who they, somebody said, hey, listen, what we really want to do is we want to make sure that we get our life insurance policies in the hands of the customers within 48 hours after they have inked it with the field agent. Right, so they put up all of these these systems in place to make sure, and you know, f- through FedEx and overnight and all this stuff, that this this seventy page document, the details of the seventy page document, were in the hands of the customer within forty eight hours. But here's the problem with that. I mean, if if any of you in the audience are running, if you've ever gotten your life insurance policy, what did you do with it when you received it? Right? I certainly didn't sit there and read it. <laughs> right. You, so, you certainly didn't sit there and read it. You probably didn't open it right away. <laughs> you, it probably sat in the corner of you like, oh, yeah, that's that's the life insurance. Because you, you weren't like, oh, yeah, let's see. I want to execute on this today. Right. And no, right. <laughs> that's the last thing I want to do. <laughs> so it, at, at best, it, then it gets you know stuck in a file someplace or put in a fire safe or, or what have you. But because it didn't mean anything to the customer, and they're like, "Well, yippee skippy, we got we got these to the hands of our customers within forty eight hours." But the customers didn't care, right. didn't care. 
So that's a great example, isn't it, of, of we're efficient at basically doing the wrong thing or something that's not adding value to the customer. No perception of value to the customer whatsoever, whatsoever. But, th- but then they could make this big claim that, they, you know, we have your policy within 48 hours. So Right, because it's easily measurable and it's just the type of thing that Frederick Taylor would go, you know, bonkers over because he can measure it and he can reduce the time and all of that. But if it's meaningless, it's meaningless. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You don't make something effective by making it more efficient. And I, I think this leads to the other thing, Ed, that you said about knowledge workers being artists. And we talked about Einstein and obviously Walt Disney. But, you know, if you think about efficiency in the knowledge environment when you're dealing with knowledge workers, it kind of takes care of itself. Because assuming you're using the latest and greatest technology and all of that, uh, you know, a, a surgeon is going to be more efficient doing its, his hundredth surgery than his first two or three. Same with an, an, an auditor doing an auditor. Pick your, pick your trade. Uh, so it's kind of the, the basic human learning curve or experience curve that usually takes care of efficiency more than anything. We just get better because of experience. And, and, and I've got the perfect story for this. And it, and, it, and, it, and it doesn't matter to certain people. There's a battle in my house around the dishwasher a battle right? <laughs> right and i'm the frederick taylor in this so this is like you know uh, uh, this is the uh, i'm the frederick taylor uh, i am the person who is trying to make sure that we load the dishwasher the most efficiently actually it's really not so much loading it's the unloading right so that we can unload it efficiency uh, efficiently and make the least number of trips back and forth Support, well right right because <laughs> my job is to unload the dishwasher right uh, yep. And actually load it, load it too. So that's that, that's the deal. So I, but I, I do a lot of travel, so I'll get home, and the when I have to unload the dishwasher and it hasn't been loaded to my specifications, it's like, oh my god, here we go, right? But here's the really cool part: is we we now have children. My my son Sean is eight years old, and it's now his job to unload the dishwasher. So now I don't care anymore. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now I can easily just sit back and say, you know what? I, how, however, the dishwasher's loaded is just fine with me. So, because no, it's no longer an effective for it's no longer a matter of to me. <laughs> right, so. right. And, you know, it brings up another very interesting point Ed, about some of these efficiency experts like Frank Gilbreth and and uh, uh, Frederick Taylor. I mean, these guys died young, and a lot of efficiency experts did. And and then you, you you sit back and you wonder, well, what were they saving all that time for? I mean, I just envision in an effective world if you unloaded the dishwasher with your son and maybe you were talking baseball you would enjoy the time that you were doing that and the time wouldn't matter right that's exactly right in fact that's that's exactly what we sort of do the first couple times we were just chatting about things and i was teaching him where things go and why and and we even had some conversations as to why they go there you know and and some of it is because it's not efficient but it's because it's effective we know we know where they are (laughs) right well you know our our mutual mentor Peter Drucker wrote one of his classic books is called The Effective Executive. And not I the efficient love, executive. Yes, not. not the yes, exactly. And I just <laughs> love to point that out because effectiveness is what matters in a business. Businesses aren't paid to be efficient. That's, right. I think, the key point. Nor did he say, nor did he say what you can measure, you can manage. He never said it. We're, this is a battle for us, Ron. We know this because if you, if any, if you Google that phrase, what you can measure, you can manage. It will be attributed to Peter Drucker, and it makes me crazy. Never said it. 
he, he never said it. He never wrote it. And, and more importantly, Ed, he didn't believe it. Uh, the closest I can tie that maxim to is, is the founder of McKinsey and Company, you know, the famous consulting firm. Marvin Bauer, I think, was his name. And I believe he coined what you can measure, you can manage. Um, and, and the problem with this, there's, there's a big problem with this concept because again, we get back to this idea that efficiency is a ratio. It's, it's, it's a blind, stupid measurement, right? Like kind of adding up a, you, you know, you could add up Rembrandt's or Picasso's inputs, you know, how much they spent on canvases, paints, all of that. But it doesn't tell you anything about the value of their work. So the problem with the McKinsey maxim, and I say this as, as somebody who's been reformed on this, that what you can measure, you can manage. Um, that 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 is patently false. But I used to believe it in my early career days. Did did you as well? Well, it 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 seems to make sense, right? It seems to make sense. Of course, I, what what I, what I can get a handle, or I've actually heard it even the inverse, right? As a as a uh, a caution, a cautionary tale. You know what you can't measure, you can't manage, right? And so this, it's this call for you've got to be able to measure it. But you know the, the real, I think, problem, and we talked about this earlier with 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 measurement, especially in business. And again, it's not that we shouldn't measure it; that we should measure measure nothing. I'm, we we can measure stuff. I'm okay with some measurement, but we should under, understand that it's a judgment in disguise. Is that when we, we we go through this this process, and is it is it the right thing that we should be talking about in the first place? I mean, it just sometimes doesn't make any sense, right? Right. So uh, when when we come back from this next break, I really want to dive into this: what you can measure, you can manage, and kind of falsify it. Uh, and we will do that right after this quick break. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you work in, lead, or own a professional firm? Do you like what you hear from Ron and Ed on the soul of enterprise? Come see them live at the Affinia Manhattan Hotel in New York City on August 14th and 15th at the Sage Firm of the Future Symposium. Ron and Ed will help you and your organization make the transformation to a modern professional knowledge firm, one that is paid for value, not time. Visit Verisage.com forward slash firm for more details. That's Verisage.com forward slash firm. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Are you interested in the topics discussed on the Soul of Enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose. Measure what matters to customers. And his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E. And follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. 
To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. The cult of efficiency has erected a multitude of nominous forms and internal bureaucracies and sent hither swarms of officers, nefarious cost accountants, superfluous lean and six sigma black belts of various colors, and activity-based costing neophytes to harass our people and eat out their substance. That's one of my favorite quotes from the Declaration of Independence. Happy Independence Day, Ron. Yeah, you too, Ed. This is great. I'm loving these quotes that you're throwing up. Yeah, throwing up literally. Yes. <laughs> but let's get back to this idea, the McKinsey, so-called McKinsey maxim, not the Peter Drucker maxim. Not Peter Drucker. Not what, Peter Drucker. Okay. What you can measure, you can manage. I mean, this, is, this again, is another concept, just like efficiency, that it, it's just like motherhood or apple pie. You can't attack it, and yet we have attacked it. So let's attack it. The fact of the matter is we, don't, we can't change our weight by having a more accurate scale or weighing ourselves more frequently. Just because we can measure something doesn't at all mean that we can management, manage it. In fact, if you think about it, this, this whole bumper sticker, what you can measure, you can manage, who's ever measured the effectiveness of management? How do you measure the effectiveness of management? All right, right, you're going too far. Well, you know, we fire CEOs all the time and managers screw up all the time. And is it, you know, what is the measure of of an effective manager? Well, yeah. Well, usually it's profit, right? I guess, or or growth or something like that. Sure, sure. But it's, 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 you know, humans are messy and we can't be reduced to a simple measurement. And I think at some future show, we're going to talk about uh, what we call the seven moral hazards of measurement uh, because I think there's some, there's some big moral hazards in, in measuring things. Um, my, my favorite, exa- you know, my favorite example of this, Ed, is when you sent me that picture of you and Christine and Sean after he had just <laughs> been born. And you know, I wrote you back kind of snarky and said, well, Ed, why are you, you and Christine so happy? I mean, your, your family per capita income just decreased by one-third, Right. I mean, the measurement makes you look poor, and yet the most joyful day of your life probably is when you have you know, the birth of a child. Right, so the, right. the, the, the measurement misses the magic of life. Oh, right. Well, which is, which is why, and we'll take this on in future shows too, that why economists are messed up too because you know, per capita GDP does the same thing. When a child is born, per capita GDP goes down, and when yep. a sheep is born, it goes up. <laughs> Excellent. You know, so this, that's, how, that's how messed up economists are. But, but let's get back to this efficiency, effectiveness, and P- Peter Drucker and, and, you know, P- and people in performance, another, another one of his, his great books. Why don't you tell us a little bit about some of that, this, the, his work there? Yeah, he, he's got a, a great line on this, and he says, you know, efficiency means a focus on costs, but the optimizing approach should, be, should focus on effectiveness, and effectiveness focuses on opportunities to produce revenue, to create value, to create markets, to change the economic characteristics of existing products and markets. And th- this is another thing that we love to, to cite is innovation is the antithesis of efficiency, you know, Frederick Taylor can't go into Google Labs or a pharmaceutical lab and say, with a stopwatch and say, hey, you guys, come up with a brilliant idea by 8.30 a.m. It, it, it doesn't work that way, right? It's the process of the mind. Like you say, Ed, they're artists. 
It, it's so true. And 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 look, t- Taylor was. I mean, he's just a, a, a nasty kind of guy when you think about this. And then it, we apply this stuff to knowledge workers. But he, but he said, you know, he was talking about the difference between first class men and the rest, and says that it's quite as great as the difference between a fine dray horse and donkeys. I mean, this is insulting, and yet people apply this stuff and his thinking to knowledge workers every single day out there, every single day. And yeah. we're, we're asking asking for knowledge workers who are creative, who are thinking to be efficient, and it, it, it's it's just it's it's killing business. It's killing that soul of enterprise, which is which is you know why we're doing this show for, because we 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 have to stop it. We have to stop this madness. We do. We have. I mean, if you think of companies that you really admire, and and you know, we don't have to name our favorites, but uh, you know, I'm sure people have a list of five Apple. Or, or Apple, yeah, you know, Apple, <laughs> Disney, yeah, uh, Nordstrom. Uh, but think about Nordstrom for a minute. I mean, Nordstrom, when you first walked into Nordstrom, I don't know if you remember your first time, but I, I remember mine. And what struck me about Nordstrom is, yeah, I realized that they have a, a large selection of shoes. And you can see from one end of the store to the other, you know, they're not your typical rat maze like a, like a Macy's or something. But uh, the thing that really struck me was the piano player. Now, there's not an efficiency expert in the world like a Taylor or Frank Gilbert who would tell the Nordstrom brothers, hey, you guys, put, put a piano in your store and hire temperamental musicians. That's not very efficient. And if you think about it, it lowers their efficiency ratio of, of sales per square foot or profit per square foot because that's, that's precious space that could be used for merchandising. And yet they've decided to put a piano in there to serenade not only their customers but their team members and it's another fantastic example of having soul you know that we're going to do things that are aesthetically pleasing for for fellow human beings and not just because they're efficient yeah and i i think it's interesting because we 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 i work a lot with entrepreneurs and it's uh, it's fascinating to see in the growth of an entrepreneurial business how it starts out with such passion uh, about this service to customers or creating something new and then over time they get you know professionalized i guess is the perhaps the way to describe it and you have all of these business consultants who are you know telling them that they have to start you know worried about their efficiency and 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 measuring this stuff and and what what i think happens and i've seen this over and over again is it's it starts to to turn the focus from one that is external focused on the outside the effectiveness part right and then turns it all inside and we start talking about what are the things that we can do Right to improve sales. Well, you can't do anything to improve sales. What can you create for customers <laughs> that improve sales? That's right. the questions that people should be asking. But I, you know, I can all. But and and here's the here's my big problem with these the lean six sigma ninja turtle. I'm I'm sorry. I know there's probably people listening who are very angry at me now, but but they claim that it's that the it's in the spirit of of about the customer. But yet every time that I've started to scratch the surface with any one of these guys, it all comes down to something that's inside the organization. And and maybe I just don't understand it. I'm willing to say that and suspend that idea. But I got to tell you, it's it's been – the conversations that I've had with these folks have really, really gotten under my skin because it's all about how do we do it better inside the organization. Right. And again, they, they, they kind of have – they violate Thomas Sowell's line about no such thing as generic efficiency. They, you know, they would build the military bridge, not the Golden Gate because, quote-unquote, it's more efficient. 
and, and, and I think this is the problem. And I have encountered the Lean Six Sigma folks. And Lean more than Six Sigma pays lip service to value to the customer, voice of the customer. But I, I, I think it's just that. I think it's lip service. I think they're, they're way too focused internally. And they don't have a, a, you know, a good theory of value because they don't understand that value is in the hearts, minds, and souls of the customers who are external to the enterprise. And I think this kind of goes back to companies you admire, I think, like Apple. Understand that. Understand that there's more to buying a computer than just what it can do and its technical specifications. It's how you feel. It's, it's how that brand or that product or service makes you feel. And, and that's a human component that can't be measured. Well, I mean, I think Jobs ta- talks uh, about new computers like they're a mistress. <laughs> it's a, y- yes, one of, his, one of his marketing people did. The guy was French. So oh, okay. Kinda, it was a guy, you know, okay. Yeah, but, but uh, he did say that. He said, you know, if you have a, an Apple laptop, that's not a computer. That's your mistress. And, and, and look, look at the way people fondle their iPhones and their iPads. I mean, these things are aesthetically, ple- you know, they're pleasing to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I think you pointed this out to me in airports and stuff when you travel. You you never you never see an Apple laptop with stickers all over it. <laughs> no, nobody ever covers up that logo because they want to tell the world that you know they think differently, right? Like like that's Apple's purpose. We 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 think different. Everything we do is because we think we think differently, and that resonates yeah. with people. Which sure. is why I don't know if you're aware of this, but the reason why the the the, the earbuds on the original and still to this day, uh, you know, iPod were white. Absolutely. So that it was this outward expression of, oh, they have an iPod because it can be different from what other people. I'm, and I'm sure that some efficiency said, well, you know, we're going to have to source the white material now. Right, right. What a pain <laughs> that's going to be. Uh, and, and, you know, my favorite definition of that iPod, Ed, was uh, I think Jobs said this or maybe somebody on the iPod team said it, that the iPod was not an MP3 player. It was an escape from reality. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And that'll be the source of more material for us is not just Apple, but the idea of, of changing business models, because that's really what Apple did there. But uh, let's, get, let's get back to this efficiency stuff, because I, I, I think it, it actually does over time become dangerous inside an organization. I, I think the, the moment that an organization starts to worry more about its, its efficiency as opposed to its outward effectiveness is the moment that it really begins to die, right? If you had th- those two things in, 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 uh, in parallel, you would see that as we think more and more about being effective to our customers, we would think less about efficiency. And if we think more about, more about efficiency, it would decrease our effectiveness. Uh, pe- people get upset with me with that. They, they, they do not think that they're mutually exclusive, but I kind of think they are. I kind of think that the more you think about efficiency, the less effective you're going to be. And vice versa, the more you think about effectiveness and and being outside, the less you'll worry or care about efficiency. I mean, you taught me a great line about you know if you if if you have a brain tumor, would you want an efficient surgeon or an effective one? Right, right, and and it couldn't be more right. I mean, I think industries that are at the apogee of their efficiency are are destined to, to fall. I, we call them Humpty Dumpties. But, uh, you know, look at the buggy whips. They were, they were models of efficiency. You know, there's a great story about this, Ed, that Steve Jobs did a tour of the IBM factory that used to make printers. And this was in the early 80s. So you know what was going on in the early 80s, what Jobs had planned. And he went through this factory, and it was one of those automated factories that 
you know, had just robots everywhere and there were like three humans and two dogs and, you know, the dogs were there to make sure that the, uh, you know, the humans didn't touch the machines, right? The humans (laughs) were there to feed the dogs. But um, he did this tour and and he was really impressed. And the IBM guy said, so, Steve, what do you think of of our factory? And he said, well, this is wonderful. He said it's incredibly efficient. Too bad it's make. Too bad you're making the wrong thing. And they were making dot matrix printers. Now, of yep. course, he 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 made those obsolete with his laser writer, right? So a classic example. It, it, they were very efficient, and yet here they were about to be made completely irrelevant. And you know, if you're efficient at doing something that's irrelevant or that doesn't add any value, then it's uh, not a very good result. So when we come back. Uh, from this next break, I want to talk about the idea that a business can't be broken out and you can't just make the parts, each part efficient and, and get an efficient whole. That's actually a fallacy in thinking. And when we come back, I'd love to explain that some more and, and talk about that some more. So we'll be back after this short break. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Are you interested in the topics discussed on the soul of enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters to Customers, and his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E. And follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you work in, lead, or own a professional firm? Do you like what you hear from Ron and Ed on the soul of enterprise? Come see them live at the Affinia Manhattan Hotel in New York City on August 14th and 15th at the Sage Firm of the Future Symposium. Ron and Ed will help you and your organization make the transformation to a modern professional knowledge firm, one that is paid for value, not time. Visit Verisage.com forward slash firm for more details. That's Verisage.com forward slash firm. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. We, therefore, the hosts of The Soul of Enterprise, assembled and appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by authority of our listeners, solemnly publish and declare that enterprise is, and of right ought to be, free and independent from the tyranny of Taylorism and the cult of efficiency. Welcome back, folks. Ron, we're going to talk about more about efficiency, effectiveness, and you were about to tear something down. Why don't you 
go set that up for us. Yes, I'm, I'm ready to shoot off some fireworks after that last quote, Ed. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, let's, uh, let's talk about this example because this idea that you can you know, look at a business and then break it down into its component parts, whatever that might be, a you know, factory setup where you're uh, doing different things on the line or whatever, or just a business in general. Uh, you know, a business is an interdependent system, and this is something I learned from Peter Drucker. And you can't just make each part of that interdependent system more efficient and expect to get a more effective whole. And and the best way I heard this described was if you were building a world-class – you wanted to build a world-class sports car. And let's assume you had the, the mechanical and technical ability to put together the 10,000 parts of a car. And you did your research and you determined that the best engine in the world is from the Ferrari and the best handling system is the BMW and the best brakes are a portion. Pick your other favorite cars, you know, Lamborghini for this and th- this car for that. If, if you assemble these 10,000 disparate parts into your garage from all the world-class you know, components of each one of those parts, you wouldn't have a world-class sports car if you put it together. You'd have a very expensive pile of junk because – each one of those sports cars is an interdependent system, and some parts of it are not efficient, but overall, the whole is effective. And I think that's the other problem with efficiency thinking. It breaks things down and assumes automatically that if everything's more efficient, the whole will be more effective. And that's patently false. It's false with the human body, right? A surgeon sometimes has to cut off a pinky to save a hand. Or has to give a treatment that might cause side effects in one area but make you more healthy overall. So we have to go back to systems thinking, I think. Yeah, and it's interesting because this is a very Newtonian view, right, of of the world. It even goes back to the, to the idea that the, you know that we have this big watch, this big clock that's out there, and you know Newton and and a lot of the folks of that of of that era uh, did tremendous work from a scientific standpoint. I mean, don't get me wrong, but what we've since learned is that a lot of those things are false and incorrect. And this, you know, this, it blows a lot of people away to, we we use the term uh, a quantum leap, right? But to to understand scientifically what a quantum leap actually is, it's it's when an electron effectively disappears from one level of going around the that the the center of the atom, the nucleus of the atom, and it goes to this whole other level, and it it just jumps. It doesn't move. It just disappears from one and appears in the other, and it like lets off a photon. Well, scientists are still trying to get their heads around this that that stuff actually just disappears. It's not Newtonian. Right. Right. It's, right. It's, it's not Newtonian. It's <laughs> it's a it's an entire unified system that, you, as you said, it's completely interdependent, interdependent on things, not dependent on certain things. And I, I you know, people try to break this stuff down to get little efficiencies here, little efficiencies there. And they, in some cases, destroy the system. I, uh, it, it's no accident, I think, that when efficiencies tend to go up, customer complaints, I'm sorry, when efficiencies tend to go down, we get more, we're more efficient that customer complaints go up. Absolutely. And I, I think this goes to two more points I'd like to make about this. And that is, you know, again, we're not anti-efficiency. I believe, and Stephen Covey, I believe, wrote this, you can be efficient with things, but not people. You have to be effective with people. And, and Ed, you have a great line on this from somebody. Yeah, my, it's a Pittman McGee is a is a sometime preacher, I think sometime philosopher, sometime business consultant actually, and he <laughs> said the the opposite the opposite of love is not hate, 
but efficiency. Right. And 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 it's it's so true. I mean, d- describe one would not describe one's marriage as efficient. If I went downstairs to Christine and said, "I love you," it's we, I, but I really like the fact that we have a very efficient marriage. <laughs> right. I, 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 yeah. Who wants an efficient marriage? I, I don't even know what that means. It kind right. of scares like me. It's just crazy. Uh, but I'd probably get slapped in the face. It's like, what do you mean I'm efficient? <laughs> you know. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that leads us to uh, you know one one uh, I thought and you thought too I'm sure the thought provoking book the management myth by mm-hmm. Matthew Stewart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But boy, was this incredibly thought provoking because what what this guy did was he took down some of the business gurus uh, of our day and, and including I might add Peter Drucker, uh, yeah. but he really uh, launched some venom at uh, Frederick Taylor, and what he said was Taylor became famous for the idea of what he was supposed to have achieved, not for what he actually achieved. And one of my favorite lines of his, of, of Matthew Stewart's on Taylor, is one can go grocery shopping with a scientific attitude, but it does not follow that there is a science of grocery shopping. And, and I think that sums up a kind of our attitude about there's not really a science of business. It's really more of an art Absolutely. Hey, hey, coming back, tell tell the story about the 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 subject uh, who was in. I, I guess he was in a class of yours where uh, you you made some offhanded remark about this whole efficiency of of your marriage. How would you even measure it? And and this dude raises his hand and said, "I kind of did." Well, he was a Six Sigma consultant. Not oh, to, there you go. You know that pro- might have something to do with his world outlook. But he did say, "Well, we have determined the efficiency of our marriage." I guess he had a prenup and he had a clause in there that they would review things after ten years and decide whether or not he wanted to go forward. And if they didn't, then how the assets would be distributed and and all of that. But if they did decide, then you know they would renew the contract. And all I was sitting there thinking about when he was explaining this to me was. Wow, that sounds like a real Romeo and Juliet story. Thanks, thanks for sharing. <laughs> yeah, well, it didn't sound very romantic to me yet. I don't know. It sounded more like a you know a legal contract, and it was, but it, it just sounded very structured and very efficient. It was, yeah. Kind of, you know, we humans we repel against efficiency. I mean, this is why the peacock walks around with this big beautiful tail, basically telling the female of the species, "Hey, I I, I can be." You know, I, I I can have this big tail which is completely inefficient and still function as a living thing, and and you know, there's a reason that we're repelled from complete efficiency. Yeah, we, we don't, like we don't waste. Like it. Yeah, yeah, we don't, we like, we don't like it. Yeah, we like we we inherently trust organizations that have resources to spare. You know, Shakespeare said, "Let me have men around me who are fat." Because then they're not you know thinking short term. Just what how where am I going to get my next meal from? And and I think uh, uh, too much of a focus on efficiency, you can uh, you can lose that perspective. So I you know back to uh, back to Matthew Stewart in the management myth book. He said you know Taylorism basically was a tautology. A, an efficient shop is a more productive than an in, inefficient shop. Well, duh. But you know the fact of the matter is you, you know for all these reasons we've discussed, you can't just be more efficient and expect a more effective whole. So I think this goes back to you know the McKinsey maxim: if you can measure it, you can manage it. Uh, it, it, it seems to me. A lot of people who are so focused on efficiency have the maxim that if you can't manage it, then you should measure it. <laughs> and I think that can be a big problem. Absolutely. It's, it's what, what I, I like to call it. It gives us the illusion of control. Yes. It's, it's, not, it's not real control. It's the illusion of control. It makes, it makes us feel better. 
because we can say, oh, look, we've, we've got this. We're measuring this, right? But it's it's not real. It's not real control at all. It, it's it's an illusion, right? And I think you know better even than effective. Why don't we strive to be efficacious? And I love this word, at least in the context of how, say, pharmaceutical companies use it in, in terms of drugs. Efficaciousness means having the power to produce a desired effect, right? Viagra is very efficacious. And uh, I, I think that's what businesses should be striving for, producing that desired effect of creating value outside of themselves. Yeah, and it, it also has a, a connotation, I believe, of, of, of achieving the, the maximum possible benefit. So not, not just a benefit, but the maximum possible benefit. And and I, I think that that's that's a that's a that's a pretty cool idea. If we could take that and and look and, and it's a it's a four dollar word, right? You're not going <laughs> to be it it'd be it'd be tough to throw that up on a website and say you know we're, we're we are very efficacious. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, and but, I know we're we're running out of time here, but uh, I uh, I know you have a, a ending quote, and then maybe I'll I'll talk about what we're going to talk about on our next show. Yeah, I, I need we need to close with this, and this this is this is really from uh, an important document. Uh, it's a letter from from John Adams to Abigail, who said the second of July. He got it. He was off by two days. Will be the most memorable epoca in the history of America, and I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the greatest anniversary festival, with pomp and parade, shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other. Man, this guy was prescient. John yes, Adams, 1776. That's certainly what everybody will be doing tonight. And, and next week on the uh, Soul of Enterprise show, we're going to talk about the first law of marketing. And uh, Ed and I are very passionate about this topic, so I'm really looking forward to that again next week. The first law of marketing uh, right here on the Soul of Enterprise on Voice America. Thank you very much. See you in 167 hours. Thanks, Ed. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage One, online accounting software designed to create freedom for small businesses to succeed. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time or 1 p.m. Pacific Time. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at www.verasage.com slash T-S-O-E. 